Coastway Church, if you are just coming in or just came in, I want to just say a big welcome to you. If you're joining us online, welcome to you. We are thrilled and we are thankful to have you here with us for our first Easter with Coastway. This is, we're a young church, we're a new church, we're an excited church, uh, we're a motivated church, and we're really excited, all of the above, to have you, uh, your family, your friends, whoever came with you, if you came alone, regardless, a welcome. We're so excited to have you. My name is Jeremy, and I am one of the pastors here at Coastway. And here's where we want to where we want to go from here. We just want to go ahead and open our Bibles. This is what we do every single week. We as a church, we have this deep conviction that we don't just need information; we need revelation. If you if you need information, you could just go to YouTube or go to Google. You didn't have to come to church today. We need revelation. Who is God, and what does that mean for my life? So, John chapter eleven. If you will go ahead, open your Bibles. If it's on your app or in your lap, or if you just want to take a look at the scriptures, they're going to be on the screens uh, as well. And here's the deal: we are confused about Easter. There's so much of culture that has infiltrated what originally has made. Easter so compelling. And I'm not saying that it's all bad. I mean, some of it's fun, some of it's fine. I mean, but really, if we get down to it, and this is the leading question that's going to get us going, what is Easter about really? Is, is it about a bunny who puts marshmallow peeps in my Easter basket? If you're asking, I'll take the pink ones, but that's a conversation for another time. Is it about all the Easter egg hunts where the kids go out and they bring the candy in and then you know, dad sits there and, you know, mom's in the mix too. And we just make sure that we filter through all the candy. And have you guys heard of uh, dad tax on candy, by the way? Let me tell you about dad tax. Dad tax is uh, dad's going to get some of this candy. And mom's, mom's there too. She's supervising. She's presiding over it. It's just like, it's, it's just a part of, you know, when you go out and you get a bunch of candy, you bring it in, you're going to pay dad tax, kid. That's just the way that it works. <laughs> so, uh, or is it about getting your family just in the picture-perfect outfits, and to everybody look at the camera and smile and just get one of those uh, wonderful pictures. Well, that stuff, hey, it's fun. It's fine. But here's, here's the problem, and here's where it all breaks down if you stop with a, with a cultural understanding of Easter and never move into a Christian understanding of Easter. None of those things are going to give you hope when you feel hopeless. None of those are go- things are going to give you life when you feel like death. When you're dealing with an addiction, when you're dealing with anxiety, uh, when you're frustrated, when you're, when you're bitter, when you feel lonely, or you're dealing with some type of loss, what you're going to need is you're going to need a more robust hope, and you're going to need something bigger to set your faith in and to move forward with. And here's what I want to do. I just want to go ahead and give you the, the main message of Easter. It's very simple, but it's also very practical. And here's what the whole idea of Easter is, and we're going to see it in John 11. It's this. Jesus rose from death to life to give you life instead of death. Jesus rose from death to life to give you life instead of death. And here's the thing about Easter is it it can remain just this ancient event where we look back on the events of Easter. We just say, okay, Jesus lived. All right, great. Jesus died. Okay, I kind of feel bad about that, but like, so what? Jesus rose. Okay, great for Jesus. Uh, What does that mean for me? And so we stop with the events. But here's what I want to show you is that when the events of Easter become a present tense experience, that's when you see what the whole Christian worldview is all about, what the whole Christian hope is all about. It's when an event moves from an event that happened back then to an experience that's happening right now. Have you ever had, by the way, an experience... Or, or an event that happened in your life, it was personal, and it changed everything about your life. I think there's a few mile markers as we journey throughout life where we experience this. One of those is, you remember looking forward to getting your driver's license? Do you remember just like the freedom that you were looking forward to? Man, when I get my driver's license, man, I'm going to be able to do whatever I want. That, that was like a, an event that changes everything. You could hear about other people getting their driver's license, but when you get it, you're like, wow, this changes everything. I can go places. Or maybe it is when you get married. Hello. My doors are still just blown off the hinges that Victoria liked me back. And that we've been married for going on 11 years. And she says that our first date, it wasn't really a date. But I I think it was. I really do. At least at some point it became a date. But you get married and you're standing before like the love of your life. Man, it's amazing. It's kind of scary. But it's like like everything's going to change in my life. Or then there's that moment when you have a Kids. 
And you, and you bring that baby girl, that baby boy home from the hospital, and you hold her, and she looks like a little extraterrestrial. It's just like, oh man, uh, this, I, would, I would die for this baby. I, w- I, would, I would die. Like It's the most beautiful sight to a mom, to a dad, to hold their baby. And here's what my prayer and my hope is today, is that that would be the way you think about the resurrection is that it wouldn't just be an ancient event, it would be a personal experience. Something that's actively happening, actively alive in your life today. You look back and you say, okay, well, Jesus lived for 33 years, 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. He walked the earth. No, No credible historian doubts that, that he actually lived. But you're like, so what? There was a lot of rabbis that lived. There was a lot of great teachers that lived until you realize that he was living under the law that you break daily in your place and for your sin. And then you say, well, he was living for me. He was living the life that I could never live. Then it gets personal. You you become grateful. Uh, Or you're just like, well, Jesus died on a cross. You're just like, I kind of feel bad about that, but what's the big deal? I mean, the Romans, they they crucified hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of people, even at one time. And you're just like, I kind of feel bad about that, but what's the deal? Until you realize... He was hanging there in your place, bearing the weight of your sin, your guilt, and your shame. Paying a debt that he didn't owe so you could live a life that you couldn't earn. You're like, man, that makes it personal. Or the empty tomb. You're like, what's what's the big deal with the empty tomb? Until you realize that when Jesus walked out of the grave, we see in Scripture that God says that the Father approved and affirmed the payment that Jesus made in your place. And so that when he walked out, he made it possible for you to walk out. That this is when it moves from just an event to an experience. And we need this. We need this because if we don't have Easter as an experience and just as an event, we're going to run from God. We're going to run to religion. We're going to, and religion is not just, oh, I'm a church person or I, I, I try to, you know, keep all these spiritual laws. No, no, no. It, it just means you try to, you seek God without God is basically what it is. And you try to earn your keep by being a good moral person. You reduce, you, re, you reuse, you recycle, you eat all non-GMO foods and you, you know, you take care of your body. It's just like you can be religious about a lot of things, but you can do it without God. Or you run to rebellion. I, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but even in our rebellion, we're searching for God. It's been said before that the man who goes knocking on the door of the brothel is still searching for God. And so we need something more than this. And so what I I want to do is I want to take you, I just want to be your tour guide today through the greatest miracle other than the resurrection in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's one of the greatest events in human history. And what this event does is you've probably heard that Jesus walked out of the grave, right? You've heard that somewhere from someone. But did you know that he brings others out of the grave? Did you know that he could bring you out of the grave? Here's what what we see. The resurrection becomes personal by walking through this story and seeing yourself in it. So in John chapter 11, we're going to be in verses 1 through 45. Again, it's just buckle up. We're going on a ride together today. And I just want to walk you through verse by verse the greatest miracle that Jesus performed before dying on the cross. And what this event shows us is, and this is the enduring significance of this event, what does Jesus do about death and despair? If you, and it's not in vogue to think about this, is it? It's like, I am going to die one day. Every person I know, every person I love, I'm either going to die before them or they're going to die before me. And I know it's not the easiest thing to talk around, around the, the dinner table, but this is the, 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 you can't stop it. Every GoFundMe page. Every ambulance, every hospital, every therapist. What's the point? Helping us navigate death and despair. And so what's the difference that Jesus makes? Well, let's find out. Verse 1, here we go. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So here's what I want to show you. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were some of Jesus' closest friends during his life on earth. He had what you might call refrigerator rights with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Do you have any friends like this? They have refrigerator rights. Basically, this is what it is. 
That person could walk into your house unannounced, unexpected, go to your refrigerator and help themselves. Okay, Jesus, that, that was Jesus' relationship. It's like they come in all Kramer style off of Seinfeld. They know where the K-cups are, and you got to make sure you got your clothes on because there's somebody who might come into my house, and it's just like, oh, okay, yeah, well, welcome, help yourself. You know, if you want to do a grocery run for me, that'd be great. But you have these friends. This is, this, Jesus was highly relational, and so he has this relationship with this family. You need these relationships as well. Verse 3. So the sisters sent to him saying, so this was before, this was back in like prehistoric days before the advent of text messaging. And so you couldn't send a text message, you had to send a messenger. And do you ever think about like you're texting somebody and you're like, how do I word this? Do do I say too much? Did I say too little? Are they going to misinterpret this? It's just like, well, I could see Mary and Martha kind of having this banter back and forth. It's like, what what are we going to tell Jesus? Like what, what message are we going to send to Jesus? And here's what they come up with. Lord, that's a good start, he whom you love is ill. So here's what I want to show you. Suffering can mean a lot of things, but here's what it does not mean. It does not mean that Jesus does not love you. And I want to show this to you because Jesus has purposes for suffering that are beyond our understanding. And if you've lived life for any length of time, if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, you know that life, nobody gets a hall pass on pain. Nobody just gets to audit the class of difficulty and discouragement. And here's the assurance that we have. Even when you don't see it, Jesus is actively working. There is no contradiction between Jesus caring for you and you still hurting. And so... Maybe God brought some of you here to church today to reconcile this believable lie that if God is caring, then I will never be hurting. That's not the case because here's the reality. Jesus can love you and you can still have a chronic illness. Jesus can love you and terrible things could have still happened to you when you were growing up. Jesus can still love you and a tragic accident that took place still haunts you. Jesus can still love you and your marriage dreams may not be going well. Jesus can still love you and you may still feel lonely. And this is the question that we need to ask because culture is so confused. What is love anyway? It says that Jesus loved Lazarus and Lazarus was ill. He had an illness. And maybe you have an illness or someone you know has an illness. We've dealt with a lot of this over the past couple of years. But here's... Here's what we see is that love is not about our feelings as much as it is about our future. And so what culture says, culture says, is no, it's all about your feelings. Don't ever do anything that would make someone not feel good. But what the biblical vision of love is, is it's bigger and it's better and it's broader. It says, I'm going to commit to your highest good, and sometimes that won't feel good. And so uh, I was in the uh, car with my four-year-old daughter, Eleanor, the other day, and basically she looks, looks at me and she's just dead serious. She's like, Daddy, I want to drive. And I'm like, are you serious, Clark? <laughs> you, you, you want to drive? And I, was, I thought she was playing. No, she, she literally wanted to drive. If I operated by the cultural definition of love, which is never disagree, never dispute, never make someone feel bad, I would have let her drive. And I probably would be in the hospital right now and you'd all be praying for me. So, but here's the point. Love is more about the future than it is about our present feelings. And that's what we need to understand with Jesus loving us and bad things still happening. The fact is, God is so much bigger and so much better than we think. He often doesn't ask us what we think. He just acts according to what he knows is best. Here's a thought you could spend the next five years thinking about. Jesus will respond to your prayers based on what you would have prayed if you knew what he knew. He's, he's, so, he's infinitely higher. His ways are not our ways. He knows more than we do. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, so Jesus hears our prayers. He heard the message. He said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So what is God's purpose for suffering? He just, he just told us. It's the glory of God. 
And you're like, well, that sounds like some abstract idea that some guy wearing darkers and pens in his pocket and a really bad hard part is like putting in books somewhere that nobody reads. Like, what is God's God's glory? What is that? God's glory is practical and God's glory is personal. What, what, What is God's glory? It is when God's goodness and His greatness goes public for you to personally, practically experience. And here's the way that you can think about God's glory. God's glory works through suffering, not around it. And if you think about the the moment in history when, when we were getting the most help, Jesus was being the most hurt. And it's on the cross. And never do we see God's glory going more public than Christ crucified for sinners who don't deserve it. So when you think about God's glory, you see, man, that was that that's what it's about. It's about God working through suffering, not around it. Verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill... Okay, don't, don't keep reading. Don't, don't look on your phone or in your, in your Bible uh, on what happens next. I just want to ask you this. Stop right there. How, if you were in charge, how would you finish this? He heard that Lazarus was ill, and what happened? It's like, I would think, you know, if I were in charge, Jesus loved Lazarus. Lazarus is sick. So what what Jesus is going to do, I mean, he's going to like, boom, throw out some like miracle power from a distance. And I mean, he healed one woman who he didn't even mean to heal. She just like touched his his garment and she was healed. And it's just like, I I would think Jesus would just do that from a distance. And then everybody would like believe and revival would break out. And by the time he got there, we'd all be having chicken wings. Well, it doesn't happen. The verse keeps going. When Jesus heard, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Like, what? Uh, Jesus, that's not how this is supposed to work. And the truth is, some of you, you feel this way. You're single, and you really want to meet somebody. And you're like, God, why are you staying two days longer in the place where you are instead of coming to meet this need? Or you're here and you're just like, we can't get pregnant. And I see all these people who don't take care of their kids, who don't love their kids, who don't nurture their kids. They're able to have, almost like look at each other and have kids. And you're just like, God, I, what about me? Where are you at? Or maybe your, your child who you trained up in the ways of the Lord, you did everything right, they have rejected the faith. And they're running from God. And you're like, God, I, I hear about these, these dingbats over here who are praying for a parking space and you give it to them. And all I want is my kid to come home. God, where are you? You ever been there? It's easy. It's easy for us to cancel God when we don't understand what He's doing and when He allows something that's difficult. But here's, here's, the, here's the problem and why you don't need to hang up is because... When, when we do that, we're the ones who miss out. How would you ever know that Jesus is your healer if you were never sick? How, how would you ever know what it cost Jesus to forgive you if you never had to forgive somebody? How would you know if, that Jesus is your greatest provider if you never had a need? I remember one of my nearest and dearest mentors in life. He did mine and Victoria's marriage counseling over 11 years ago. His name's Jay Alvaro. And he's one of the men who I just have undivided respect for on this planet. Look up to him, love him. And last fall, he, he came down uh, with uh, COVID pneumonia, both at one time. And, and man, he was, we, we thought it was over. We, we thought he wasn't going to make it. All the signs were pointing to this, this was it for Jay. And Victoria and I, we were, we were devastated. Miraculously, God spared him, God sustained him, and he's healthy again. And I, I talked to him just this week. But here's what, here's what Jay said. He said, I'll never forget this. He said some really profound things through it. He said, I know God more deeply, and I trust him more fully because of the sufferings that he allowed. And I'm like, wow, more, Lord, more, more of that, Lord. But this is an example of what happens when the ministry of suffering has its work in our lives is what we can do is is our souls can be like the still waters on the Sea of Galilee underneath 
the feet of Jesus. Peace be still. Verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? They're like, you sure, boss? Like the Pharisees, the guys who are plotting and planning to kill you, are sharking around in the bushes, waiting to attack. And you're going to put yourself directly in the line of fire. You're basically, what you're doing is that, that, that scope, this, their scope is, is going to be targeted directly at you if you go. And so Jesus had a choice to make. He could stay and he could live longer, or he could go and he could die sooner. It could be Jesus instead of Lazarus, or it could be Lazarus instead of Jesus. And I want you to see what he does. Knowing this, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbled, stumbles because the light is not in him. Does that help anybody? I think the disciples are over here like, what? Peter's like elbowing John as he's like tweeting out fire and hand clap emojis. Like, oh, rabbi, so deep. And he's like, you know what that means? He's like, no, I don't know what that means. And it's like, oh, so good, so good. And it's just, but they're, they're over here. They're like, what does that mean? <laughs> and so here's the deal. If you ever have a hard time understanding things that are said in church, if you ever have a hard time understanding things that are in the Bible, I've got good news for you. You would make a great disciple. Because the majority of the time, these knuckleheads, they never got it. And that's us. Verse 11. After saying these things, he explained to them, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Okay, so what, what happens next would be the equivalent of like a youth league third grader telling LeBron James how to play basketball. Check this out. The disciple said to him, Lord... If he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, all right, guys, team huddle, bring it in. Let me say the plain thing. Lazarus has died. Thank you for that clarity, Jesus. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Jesus is not glad that Lazarus died. He's glad that he's about to bring life from death. He's glad that because Lazarus died, more people are going to behold, and more people are going to believe, and more people are going to become followers who are going to know life forever, not just life for now. Verse 16, So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Did anybody just kind of feel the room just like go down right there when Thomas starts talking? It's, it's, it's a shame because Thomas, we know him as Doubting Thomas. He's like got this nickname because he doubted whether or not Jesus actually rose, if you keep reading. But he, we could, honestly, we could call him ready to die Thomas because that's what he's ready to do right here. And honestly, this is true discipleship. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Is Jesus is your life, so you're willing to walk with him into death. You're willing to walk with him into sacrifice. You're willing to walk with him into service. You're willing to be sent into dark places and dangerous spaces because you know that your life ultimately can't be taken because it's secured in him. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. That's a very important detail. Four days, let me tell you why. Because Jewish superstition held that a person after they died, their spirit... Now, this is not biblical teaching. This was Jewish superstition, okay? The Bible doesn't teach this. That a person's spirit would like hover around their body like Casper the Friendly Ghost for like a day or two. And so basically there was a chance, there was an off chance that the spirit might come back into that person's body and like resuscitate them and resurrect them. And so what Jesus is saying, by allowing it to be four days, he's cutting through the confusion, he's cutting through the superstition, he's saying, Lazarus is not Princess Bride dead, Lazarus is not Sleeping Beauty dead, he's dead dead. And verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, where they were going, about two miles off. So here's, here's what I want to do right here. I want to I show you how detailed this story is, how specific this event is really is, how accurate the events that it records align with reality. So 
These are real places, real people, and real names. Real geographical places that you can go to. And so what this tells us is that the accounts and the events of Scripture are not some lovely legend. Not some events that took place like on Star Wars in a galaxy far, far away. Now, did you know that you can, you can go to Bethany today and, and historians have credible evidence that they know where Lazarus' tomb is? You, you can go to where historians have credible, credible evidence where Jesus' tomb is. There's been like a big church that's been built upon it, so it's hard to kind of reimagine it. But here's what I want you to see. The circumstantial and historical evidence have been scrutinized over the years on whether or not Jesus actually got out of the grave. And here's what I want you to hear loud and clear. Jesus absolutely lived. Jesus absolutely died. Jesus absolutely rose from the grave historically, physically, and verifiably just as he said he would. And over the years, there have been many cynics. There have been many critics and other people who are just genuinely curious who have attempted to explain away the resurrection. They'll say things like, the body was stolen. They went to the wrong tomb. Or Jesus didn't really die. And truthfully, it takes more faith to believe these ideas than that Jesus actually did what the gospel accounts say that he did. And that's physically, verifiably, and historically come out of the grave with healing and help and life in his, in his wings. And what I want to do is the, the reasons for the resurrection are, are compelling. And there's so many. You could get into this. There's a lot of great resources. You could read J. Warner Wallace. You could read Lee, Lee Strobel, Josh McDowell. Great evidence, Rebecca McLaughlin. You could go out there. That, that, that You need to follow the truth where it leads. But here's what I want to do. I want to give you five reasons why the resurrection really happened. And we'll go kind of quick through these. But the first is this, a willingness to die for Jesus. There was a willingness to die for Jesus by his disciples. And truthfully, we have not changed all that much over the course of history. We're not as sophisticated as we think that we are. People, the human nature has not changed. And so let me ask you this. What would it take for you to be willing to die? Well, I'll tell you what it would take. Something that you believed wholeheartedly and you knew was true. Uh, well, this is what we see with Jesus' disciples. Over the centuries, this wasn't just some isolated event that happened in the first century. This has happened throughout thousands and thousands of years, is the blood of the saints being spilled throughout history as proof of the resurrection that something really happened, and that something was that Jesus walked out of the grave. But it wasn't just a willingness to die for Jesus. It was also the witnesses who saw Jesus. So what the gospel accounts record is at least 15 people are named who saw Jesus walking around in resurrected form. And here's what Paul says. He says there were over 500 people that he appeared to over the course of 40 days, 15 of whom are named, and he said, go ask them. Go ask them. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and those outfits can go back to the outlets, and we can all go home. Next, it was worship from unlikely people. All right, so moms, let me give you a shout out real quick. Jesus' mother believed that he was God. If your child came to you <laughs> and said, Mother, I am God, you would be like, deranged child, go to your room. <laughs> so unlikely. Mary actually believed this. James, Jesus' brother, believed that he was God. So anybody got a sibling? Raise your hand. You got a sibling. What, what would it take for them to convince you? It's like, yeah. Humble brother, humble sister, I am the son of God. And you're like, you the son of something, it ain't God. You better just get to stepping or we're about to get to bruising over here. Uh, Paul, the apostle Paul, he murdered and persecuted Christians. And because of the resurrection and the revelation of Jesus Christ living in, in, in front of his very eyes, he went from murderer to missionary. And I don't say this lightly, but I, I want you to see the significance. This would be like... Vladimir Putin becoming a citizen of Ukraine 
under President Zelensky's authority. That's, that's what we're dealing with, with Paul having this radical of a conversion. Next, it was the whereabouts of Jesus' body. So Jesus was buried in a tomb. We know this. And we know where the tomb was. It was actually the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who the Pharisees, who wanted to make sure that Jesus stayed dead, uh, would have been able to go to and say, okay, this is where the body was laid, this is where the body is. But actually, we read that they had to pay the guards off to lie about the whereabouts of Jesus' body because it was miraculously no longer in the tomb. Next, it's a worldwide movement. How do you explain this? How do you explain what started as a fledgling group of backwater fishermen in Galilee erupting into the most influential movement in human history that has since spread to every continent on planet Earth and currently today has over 2.5 billion adherents? I'll tell you why. It's because the resurrection really happened and Jesus really walked out of the grave. There's a... If you Google the, the world's most successful lawyer, here's what you're going to come up with. Sir Lionel LeCou. This guy was a legend. So here's what happened from the 60s to the 80s. Sir Lionel LeCou secured 245 consecutive murder acquittals. And it's like, what would it be like if a guy with that legal prowess and legal mind would put it to work building or destroying a case for the resurrection? What do you think he would say? Well, actually, we know, and here's because he did it, and here's what he says. I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. We have a living hope because we have a living Lord. Verse 19, And so in Bethany many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. So what I want you to pay attention to is how Jesus relates to two different people in two different ways as they're facing the same situation. Anybody who's had multiple kids, you probably know that uh, no two kids are the same. And Jesus understands that no two disciples are the same. He relates to us. So take a look. In verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So here's the thing about Martha. She has good doctrine, but she still doubts. She's a Christian, but she still has questions. It's okay. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. So here's what I want you to see. Jesus ministers to Martha with truth. And this truth is so powerful. It's that because the resurrection is true, every good thing that you lose in this life, you're going to get it back a hundredfold in eternity. And just personally speaking, I can tell you that there was something devastating that happened to me when I was 15 years old in high school. My dad was rendered paralyzed from the neck down in a tragic motor vehicle accident that was almost almost fatal. And I, I remember that that happening and you know it's 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 been 18 something years since that took place. And and my dad, he's been a quadriplegic since that point. Uh, a man of faith still believes and affirms that Jesus is Lord and he's no less good and he's no less God, even through the pain, even through the trials. But here's what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to the day when my dad's going to put his arms around me again in heaven. And I'm going to feel that again. And he's going to, he's going to, he's going to feel that again. And he knows that day is coming. Uh, I, I have really bad eyesight. Anybody else wear glasses or like corrective lenses? I'll tell you what I'm really excited about. I'm excited to be able to see again without these dumb corrective lenses. Like, I, I just, to be able to see clearly, it's like Jesus is saying, hey, Jeremy, that's coming to you in the resurrection. <laughs> You're going, to, you're going to see colors, you're going, to, you're going to see sights, you're going to see beauty that you were never able to behold, even with perfect vision on earth. But what about for you? What is it that you've lost? Is it a loved one? Is it an opportunity? Is it a dream? Is it a hope? Well, here's the assurance of the resurrection, that you're going to get it back. You're going to get that back in the resurrection when Jesus 
brings us into our eternal bodies to live with Him and to be with Him forever. It says the prophet says in Joel chapter 2, the Lord will restore to you what the locusts have eaten away. And this is our hope. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus is asking you that question today. Do you believe this? And here's what Jesus is doing. He always takes us farther than we realize we need to go. And he offers us more than we realize that we actually need. He's asking Martha a deeper question. He's asking, do you want Lazarus back for now? Or do you want Lazarus back forever? You see, I I came to do more than just give you back Lazarus for now. I came to give you Lazarus back forever. And that you will be with me and I will be with you and you will have a living hope. Verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but still was in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, watch how Jesus responds to the same situation in a personal and unique manner to Mary. Take a look at this. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. See how she's more visibly emotional? Um, you know, Martha, she was probably like an eight on the Enneagram. You know, maybe sometimes wrong, but never uncertain. You married to one of those people? Don't raise your hand. Don't do that, okay? <laughs> so, but, um, but then you've got Mary. She was more like a four on the Enneagram, and she would have been just like artistic, very in touch with her feelings, uh, very in the moment, and so Jesus is pressing into the way that they've been wired. Now she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Okay, same objection, same concern. Watch this. Do you see how Mary is responding in a different way? She's more emotional. She's more, she's more in the moment. But she asked the same question. And here's, here's what both Mary and Martha needed. They needed the presence of Jesus, but they needed unique responses. And so what Martha gets and what Martha needed was for Jesus to be fully God and to speak truth to her heart. What Mary needed was for Jesus to be fully man and to shed tears alongside of her. And he, he does both of these things. And here's, here's what I want to tell you. God wants to be real to you. But before He can be real to you, He needs you to be real with Him. Jesus did not die to save who you pretend to be. You need to bring your real sins, your real struggles, your real sorrows to the feet of Jesus and let Him customize healing for you. It's what he does with Mary and Martha. It's what he'll do with you. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So deeply moved is actually a pretty soft translation. This means he is furious at death. Verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. So this is where healing starts. This is where healing happens. It is the the moment when we invite Jesus into the deepest pain and the darkest place in our lives. And I'm afraid that so many people, Christians included, have never done this. Jesus says, show me the grave. Show me that place that you don't want anybody else to know about. Show me that place in your life that you don't ever want to talk about and you've never done it. You've never grieved with Jesus. So when something devastating happens, and it's years after that thing, that tragic, that tragedy, that trial, that trauma that took place in your life, and you still can't think about it, you still can't talk about it, 
without just turning into waterworks. Without avoiding or making some sarcastic, dodge the issue comment. Or getting angry. We know exactly what's going on. Here, and here's what's going on. You've tried to make sense of suffering without God. And it's not going very well. And here's, here's the lie that we believe. We, that we believe is that God won't ever make sense of suffering. Here's the truth for our hearts today. The truth we need is that suffering won't ever make sense without God. And I want to show you where healing starts. It's in verse 35. Jesus comes and Jesus wept. Jesus weeps with you over what death, over what disobedience, over what despair, over what depression takes from you. He's not happy about it. And what's interesting is even though he knows he's about to turn the funeral into a festival, he still is present in the moment because he can't close his heart to you for a single minute. He loves you that much and he comes in that close on your hurts. And one of the lies that we believe is that tears equal weakness. Well, I guess Jesus was weak. No, it's not true. You know, actually, tears are an expression of a whole person. A whole person who's healed is able to express the full range of emotions freely. And Jesus was able to do that. Let us become more like Him. Let us pursue this. You see, what, when you invite Jesus into the grieving process, people don't say, where is God? Here's what they say instead, verse 36. So the Jews said, see how He loved Him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. The King James Version translates this, He, he stinketh. It's like a group of teenage boys in the summer. It smells really bad. For he has been dead... Four days. Verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So five minutes in, and Martha's doubting again. You ever have to tell your kids something twice? Hey, this is really the way it works. This is really who I am. This is really who you are. Jesus does this with his friends. Jesus does this with his followers. Verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And I love, I love what uh, Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, if he had not said Lazarus' name, the entire graveyard would have been emptied. And that's because... Everything that God's Word commands, God's Word accomplishes. Watch what happens. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Do you see it? Jesus was able to call Lazarus out of the grave because he knew that he was going into the grave. And Jesus is able to call you out of the grave because he first went into the grave instead of you. And that's what this moment is all about. Jesus rose from death to life to give you life instead of death. And I pray that that could be personal for you. I pray that that could be more than historical, but that it could be a deeply personal reality. You see, Lazarus' resurrection is a preview of all that Jesus would go on to do for you. All of us like Lazarus are dead. We are dead in our sins and we're separated from God. And just like Lazarus couldn't bring himself out of the tomb, we can't bring ourselves out. And Jesus knows this. And so what does he do? He pays the price to buy us back from death and bring us back to life. And let me show you what makes this miracle so personal. It's the price that Jesus had to pay to perform it. You see, if you take a look at John 11, verse 53, we find that it, this was the event that sealed Jesus' death sentence. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So Jesus gave his life 
in exchange for Lazarus. And Jesus gave his life in exchange for you. And this is the good news of the gospel. Here it is. It's that Jesus died because of you, and Jesus died instead of you. Jesus died because of you, which means you're guilty. We're all guilty. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. We've not committed petty crimes. It's not misdemeanors. No, this is, these are felonies against the cosmic king of the universe, and they are justly deserving of death. But Jesus died instead of you, there's grace. Jesus died instead of you, there is grace. Jesus Christ became a curse for us by going to the cross in our place, as it is written, cursed is him who hangs on a tree. And hanging there, here's what he took. He said, you you give me that addiction. You give me that abortion. You give me that anxiety. You give me that abuse. You give me that abandonment. You give me that anger. All of it. I want it all. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the punishment to purchase your pardon. And what happened? It's what theologians call the great exchange. And this is not like, hey, you don't want to go into work, so you call somebody and you're just like, hey, will you work for me today? No, 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 no. It's much bigger than that. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he would go onto the cross, the Pharisees would put him to death, and here's what would happen. Jesus cries as he dies, it is finished. What was finished? Death was finished. Despair was finished. And there was this cosmic reversal of death for us, death into Jesus. And, and there was something that happened in that moment, and what happened somehow, some way, by faith, through grace, it can count for you. And here's what happened. We read in Matthew chapter 27, it's remarkable, that the veil of the temple, which is where the presence of God dwelled, was torn not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. And what Jesus was saying is, this is a satisfactory payment for me to remove the barrier between the people and my presence, so now there's access. And when that happened, it said that the earth quaked, that rocks split in two. And after Jesus rose from the grave on the third day in the morning, there were other people who had died and been buried who walked among the people in Jerusalem. And what this was, was the receipt of God's authorization of Jesus' death in your place. It can happen for you. And Paul explains what what happened here in Colossians 2, 13-14. He says, You who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Him, having canceled the record of death that stood against you with its legal demands. This He nailed to the cross. He disarmed the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Hallelujah for the cross. Our King is alive. This is the hope of Easter. This is the hope of the resurrection. Let me show you that it doesn't stop right there, and then I want to invite you to respond. When you have been resurrected to a new life, it doesn't start in the next life. It starts right now. Take a look at verse 44b. Jesus said to them, Unbind him, take off his grave clothes, and let him go. So here's what happens. When Jesus covers our guilt and calls us out of the grave, The process of transformation has just begun. Here's what he wants to do. He wants to outfit and upfit you and your life from grave clothes to grace clothes. And here's the the difference. You ever get a new outfit? You know, maybe maybe you got a new outfit recently. You're just like, it gives you like this feeling of almost like confidence. Like, man, I look pretty good in this. Man, take a look. And you're just like more confident. What Jesus says is, I want to outfit your life with something bigger. I want to outfit your life with something better. And so what grave clothes are, is it's a literal, it was literal for Lazarus, but it's spiritual for us. It's anything that we outfit our life with that leads to death. It's greed, it's envy, it's bitterness, it's lust, it's pride, it's shame, it's fear, it's toxic relationships. 
And it makes us feel death and it makes us feel despair. But what Jesus is saying is that His plan for His people is for grave clothes to come off and grace clothes to come on. And what happens, the grace clothes come on when we allow Jesus through His Word, through His Spirit, and through His church to have His way in our lives. And to outfit us with better virtues, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. But I want you to see that Lazarus, and this gives so much hope to so, so many of us, Lazarus couldn't take the grave clothes off on his own. He needed other people. And we believe that we are, we are a people who know God as Father and church as family. That's what it means to be a Christian. And what, what a spiritual family does is it makes the good times twice as good and the bad times half as bad. So you're here and you're looking at things that you shouldn't look at. Here's what this text is telling you. You will never beat that impulse on your own. You're abusing some substance and it's taking you down a deep, dark place. You will never be able to recover from that on your own. You're not experiencing the unity and the wholeness in marriage that you want to experience. You're not going to be able to do that in the dark. You're only going to be able to do that in the light when you step into community. And so what I want to encourage you, you're here and you're joining us today. I want to encourage you, hey, come back next week. Don't just... Don't just be a CEO, a Christmas and Easter only Christian. Like, come back. Let the grave clothes come off. That's a next step that we could all take. So I just want to ask you this. What are you outfitting your life with? Grave clothes or grace clothes? Last verse. Many of the Jews, therefore, had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. So to behold Jesus personally is to believe in Jesus fully. And I think there's three things that are happening right now, right now in this moment. And I want to use this as a springboard for response. Number one, Jesus is weeping with you. Jesus is weeping with you. You see, what, Mary, or what happened with Mary is she believed that Jesus was who He said He was, and she felt the compassion of Jesus through death. Is that you? Is that, is that the Jesus that you need to step into your wounds? But not, not only is Jesus weeping with you, Jesus is revealing Himself to you. You see, Martha believed, and she saw the glory of God. And is that you? Do you need to see the glory of God in His unlimited control? Mary saw His compassion. Martha saw His control. Maybe there's something in your life that you just need to see the control of God just completely step in and completely take over. If so, tell Him. But then there's Lazarus. And what happens with Lazarus is this, is this is Jesus doing something. He's inviting you. He's inviting you out of the grave. He's inviting you to take off the grave clothes and to live in the newness of life that He died and He rose to bring to you. 